This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Ahoy, and welcome back to a very special Titanic talk line where I am going to be joined by some very important guests to talk about the RMS Lusitania. But before I am joined by our special guest, in case you've never heard of Lusitania, quick little history. It is a Cunard liner ship that was launched in 1906, and it had the blue ribboned appellation for fastest Atlantic crossing until the Mauritania came along, which is totally typical younger sister behavior. The Lusitania had a pretty lucrative career until it was torpedoed by a German U-boat, U-20, on Friday, May 7th, 1915. And it was a pretty big tragedy. Most of the people that were on board were killed. And we are going to learn a lot more about some people who know a lot more about this than I do. I would like to welcome back Kent Layton and Tad Fitch, who have been on my show before. And first time, I am excited to have Tom Linsky and Mike Poirier, (laughs) whose name I've once again messed up. It's fine, Alexandra. It's fine. We're good. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you guys all for coming on to the show because I don't really know a whole lot about the Lusitania. I've started, you know, reading Honesty of Glass and learning a bit about the history, but Tad mentioned to me in a message before this that people have a lot of misconceptions about this ship and this wreck and its significance. Yeah, Alexia, first of all, just thanks for having us on again. It was um, a pleasure last time when we were looking forward to this, but um, one of the big things right off the bat that we hear um, consistently from people is the misconception that the Lusitania sinking is the reason that the United States entered World War One, which is mm-hmm. simply not true. Uh, at most, you can say it was really something that turned the public sympathies against Germany uh, in the war even further than they had been drifting. And, and really, that kind of set um, the U.S. down the path towards viewing it as a negative thing. And, and um there was a lot of other things that had to happen before the United States entered the war. So um, if you ever see that written somewhere that that's why uh, the United States ended up fighting in Europe, it, it really was not the culminating event. It was just a one step of many down that pathway, but it was still quite some time before uh, the U S did enter the war. So at least two years, yeah. mm-hmm. about two years. I can see from a person's perspective who doesn't know a whole lot about sort of history as a concept where it is convenient to look at singular events like the sinking of the Lusitania and it it is very convenient to be able to to ascribe things like that because it it is quite convenient to you know and a lot of pieces and people and mindsets at the time kind of lend credence to that it's the perfect type of event that you would think would lead to uh, a country going to war but uh, and um Ken, to everyone else here is more qualified to speak on this topic than I am, but um, America was very isolationist, and it was also very German. There were a lot of Germans here, so the um, the public opinion, honestly, before the Lusitania and some of the other events around the same time, if America were to enter that war, people didn't quite know which side we would enter on. Um, 
you have to remember this was the first world war. There wasn't a clean cut good and evil like with the second world war. Um, it was everyone was an empire and everyone had their own reasons to be fighting. Uh, so there was no clean cut side as to who the United States would be joining if we ever went. Um, we were sending aid to both sides. We were um, supportive and and against both sides in, in different ways. But as Tad said, the, uh, the sinking of the Lusitania was one of those events where it helped people realize if we go to war, it's going to be against Germany. Yeah, I think Tom really put that well. I think I think you're um, a little modest, Tom, uh, when you when you say others know it better than you, because I know you have a really good grasp of the, the general picture, the broad scope. And like like Tad and Tom said, um, the U.S. was very isolationist. And in addition to German population, a lot of German immigrants in the U.S., there was a lot of Irish immigrants in the U.S. And the Irish and the Germans, they were not particularly supportive of the British side of the of the conflict. Um, the government at the time seemed to have a more pro-British outlook than many of the people, the sentiment. And so you kind of had that divide where Tom said, if they were going to enter the war, which which side was was the country going to come in on? And I think that's where the Lusitania was that dividing point, that fork in the road, where up to that point, there might have been some question but after that point, there was never any doubt. And although the Lusitania did not bring the U.S. directly into the war, and there was that two-year span there, the emotions were so high over the loss of life uh, of civilians, and particularly of the American civilians, that when the U.S. did eventually enter the war, it's it's been told before that some of the uh, individuals on the front lines, they would run into battle shouting, remember the Lusitania. Uh, so it did not bring the U.S. into the war, but it was something that it it really stuck. It was um, the way the ship was sunk without warning and endangering and, and, and killing civilians. It was something that was very frowned on at the time because the way people fought wars back then uh, leading up to the First World War was considered much more of a gentlemanly thing between you know, naval battles, civilians were not supposed to be hurt in these things. And and it was just so outrageous, you know, to the to the public conscience that there was no going back, you know, from that from that point. It was if it was going to go down, it was going to go down in that one direction and one direction only. There was also a little bit of appeasement after the sinking, if I remember correctly. The uh, U-boat warfare was restricted afterwards so it, it was almost like germany agreed to not let that happen again um yeah plus plus there was the popularization of lusitania carrying weapons to britain so germany was saying this violated your neutrality so you kind of had this coming now there were arms on board i believe correct and <laughs> but ships going to germany were carrying arms too so both sides were doing it yeah well, and, and that's one of the, the more controversial things about the sinking, which we might go into at some point during conversation tonight, is that there were munitions on board a lot of um, vessels that carried passengers. And that was something where almost where the Royal Navy and some of the shipping lines were basically, in my opinion, using 
uh, passengers as human shields, thinking that Germany would never have attacked those vessels. And um, people have to remember that Germany was in a no-win situation even this early in the war because Britain had blockaded them to prevent all sorts of materials from reaching. And there was civilians that were um, having to ration and almost on the verge of starvation by the time the war was over. And Germany was really trying to counter blockade um, Britain. And that's what led to some of these tensions uh, because U-boats were really the only way they could do that. Um, Their Navy couldn't stand up to the Royal Navy at all um, in a head-to-head battles. They just didn't have the resources to rebuild from the damaged and sunk ships. So they they really were relying on U-boats to try to counter blockade Britain. Uh, And really both sides, if you look at that, that's there is some international laws that were being violated by both parties um, throughout the course of that conflict by doing that. And Tad and Mike, uh, over the last few years, um, they've done a lot of research on the greater scope of uh, civilian passenger liners during the First World War. They put out a terrific book, Into the Danger Zone, uh, that chronicled a lot of the experiences that not just the Lusitania, but the Titanic ship Olympic, uh, the Britannic, and so many other passenger liners from that time, what they experienced and how uh, they didn't think of U-boats in 1914, 1915, the same way that we think of U-boats. When we think of U-boats today, we think of the um, the killing machines that almost brought the UK to its knees during World War II. We you know, that finely honed machine, but back during World War One, they were rather newfangled um, devices, uh, implements of war, and they didn't really know exactly how to use them and how they fit in with the longstanding rules of warfare. Um, so there wasn't exactly the concern in the minds of many of these civilian ships. Uh, and their captains and their officers as there would be during the second world war when they heard of a u-boat it was more of like a well is it possible that they could get us maybe but they're kind of slow they're kind of fragile we can outrun the danger whenever we you know think there's some danger so we spent a lot of time talking about the politics and the uh, and the u-boats but <clears throat> the, uh, the lusitania the context is, is really important absolutely Absolutely. Um, but the Lusitania, one of the interesting things is it ranks up there. It, like if you look at those BuzzFeed lists or social media lists of like the top shipwrecks in history, the most famous shipwrecks, Titanic's always number one. Lusitania is usually, usually two, maybe three, but usually number two. But it's amazing how even though it's second, that gap that's in between Titanic and anything else on that list, including the Lusitania, because I want to say, you know, everyone knows the Titanic, you know, at the, at the very least, they know the basic story hits an iceberg sinks. Most of the people on board die. They know the rough era, the night, the rough time frame. They know how it slowly unfolded over the course of the night. They get the broad picture, even if they don't know the full history, sure. but Lusitania 60 to 70 percent of the people won't even won't even know it's a ship so it's it's great to be able to to just come on and and do a do a talk about it well i guess sorry before i just to let you evaluate expand on that more 
what does make the Lusitania so special for those of us who who don't really know a whole lot or for everyone who's been so sunk in the Titanic that, you know, everyone only knows how to give a big four funnel fuck you to any other ship, which is ridiculous. <laughs> yep. But you know, why was Lusitania special aside from the sinking, you know, it because it was, as I mentioned, there was already a, she won an award for speed. Sure. Um, which was a big deal, especially considering that, you know, this was in addition to Germany and it, the war politics, Britain and Germany were kind of engaging in an arms race with ships, you know, yeah. completely outside. Well, not completely outside of, but like somewhat separate to the politics. So, sure. Well, you mean like what makes it number two instead yeah. of 20 or 50? Um, that's an excellent question. And as you said, it had the blue ribbon, which... Titanic never even had the blue ribbon and and was never even going to try to qualify for that. I think um, the political impact is definitely a big one. And then the the biggest ones on those lists generally have a higher death toll. And we're talking around 1200 people here on the Lusitania, which is only a couple hundred shorter than the, than the Titanic. Now, of course there were wrecks with significantly more than both of them combined really, but it was, it was a luxury liner um that at its peak had a lot of the same accolades as the titanic you know it was considered by some to be unsinkable it was safe it was the epitome of luxury it was that um the ultimate british passenger liner and of course by the time of its sinking it was aged um and it was running during wartime, so it wasn't nearly as luxurious. It had some um, restrictions put on it. It wasn't going as fast. Um, but I don't. Anyone here want to have a crack at that question? I'd be interested to hear Mike's take on that because yeah. the big difference between Titanic and Lusitania is that lengthy career that it had prior to the sinking. It wasn't on its maiden voyage, so I know Mike's done a lot of study on the passenger accounts i'd be really interested to hear his thoughts about what made it so special i would say because they they both have this invincibility about them you know titanic was supposed to be the 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 biggest and the best and when you get to the lusitania its speed was supposed to make it invincible and that's how the ticketing agents sold it for the last voyage that it can outrun any submarine and that's um, that was the inducement for people to, to to book passage or even switch passage. You know, a lot of people said, well, I was booked on this ship, but the ticketing agent said, oh, no submarine could ever catch Lusitania and we'll get there in X amount of days. And, you know, a lot of postcards home were saying, well, you know, we just found out we're on the ship that it's going to be a seven day crossing. And that's not what they promised. But at the end of the day, they still, even from the impressions they got from the crew, is this is this ship is invincible. You know, it's it's gone through these waters, it's been chased, and nothing can stop it. And um, unfortunately, it was stopped. You know, and uh, the other thing is. Uh, you know, Germany has put out so much propaganda, and of course, that's filtered down through the years, even through uh, American authors, British authors. Of course, there's a terrible book by Colin Simpson that basically repeats a lot of German propaganda, and uh, he defended it right to the end. I think he's dead. I'm not sure. But um, 
one thing we have found out in our research is, you know, the Germans said, oh, we had no idea it was Lusitania. Well, that's a lie. They knew exactly what ship it was. There were only so many four funnel liners and they knew the route of the Lusitania. The Lusitania never really altered its route. And that German submarine was there waiting for a big prize. And a few days before, uh, the head of the North German line said, surely we will get the Lusitania. I need. It, it, there's no doubt in my mind that the U-20 was laying there in wait for it, just as the, the submarines had been waiting for it off Ireland on previous voyages. And when you go back a little bit further, the, the Lusitania... Uh, We've referred to this lengthy career that she had. When you think of the superliners of the 20th century, you think about the Queen Mary, you think about Titanic, you think about Normandy, you think about Andrea Doria, all those other ships. The Lusitania and her sister ship Mauritania were really the very first of the 20th century superliners. Um, as was referred to, they were kind of bred from this competition, this one-upsmanship between Britain and Germany, um, Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, you know, his grandmother was Queen Victoria. Not many people know that these days. Um, even though he loved his grandmother very much and was reportedly very devoted to her, he was also very keen to make sure that Germany kind of was on the road to take first place where Britain had been in so many areas. And from around 1889, when he toured, uh, uh, a white star liner that had just come out. Uh, he was known to have said, you know, we we have to get some of these ships for ourselves. And he followed through on that. So in 1897, uh, the Germans began putting out this whole stream of super fast, super luxurious ships. And that's why the Lusitania and the Mauritania came into being. Uh, Cunard approached the British government. They were in a financially difficult spot. They needed to they needed to do something extraordinary. It, it wasn't just a a small jump, a small evolution. It was it had to be an extraordinary move in order to knock the Germans off the, the competition. And so what they did is they got the financial backing from the British government and they decided to invest in an entirely new technology that was very untested at the time for the engines. And that was turbine technology. Most of the ships before that had been powered with the reciprocating engines that you think of when you think about Titanic and that that scene in the movie you know, where the ship is coming up to speed with these huge moving parts. A turbine is is a very simple device that it just spins at high speed and it turns your propellers. And so they were not only going larger, they were going faster, they were going more luxurious, and the two ships were built at the same time, Lusitania entered service first. And so she got all of those first accolades like the Olympic did uh, before Titanic. Uh, she was the largest ship in the world. She was, you know, everybody wanted to travel on the Lusitania. Uh, and then she became the fastest on her second round trip. Um, and she just, she had this kind of um, comfortable, familiar feel by 1915, where people had known the ship, she was dependable. They had traveled on her for seven and a half years. They'd known about her comings and goings. It was in the newspapers all the time when her and the Mauritania would, would they would kind of uh, take the, the speed prize and they would pass it off between the two of them because they were the two fastest. And so it was just 
a routine. It She had always been there. Probably most people thought she always would be. And then suddenly she wasn't. And I think one of the things too about Lusitania people, um, obviously Titanic is so popular in the, in the culture of most countries, but they think of how luxurious the Titanic was, but a lot of travelers um, now styles were changing between 1907 and 1912, but um, Lusitania, if you see pictures a far more intricate and, and fancy interiors than what were on Titanic. Um, and that's not to say better or worse, just just different given that that change in styles over a course of a few years. Um, I don't know, Tom, this might be a good part. We can talk, talk about like what you guys are doing with uh, the project currently with the interiors, because that was something that seeing in living color, so to speak, is so much different than black and white. Yeah, so we're um, <clears throat> actually all of us here. We're working on a, uh, a project which my company is producing called uh, Lusitania, the Greyhound's Wake, because uh, Lusitania was called a Greyhound, Greyhound of the Atlantic, um, where we're recreating it as a uh, as a basically in the format of a video game. It doesn't have a game element or anything like that, but it is just an experience where you can explore the ship, go throughout it, walk the decks, go inside go to the different spaces, see how it was and just see it from the perspective of someone on board. And we're also recreating the sinking in real time. So I I've done stuff like this with the Titanic. I've done stuff like this with other ships, actually Titanic sister ship, the Britannic. And um, I've, I've done projects and, and in doing the Lusitania, we are in the, the final stages of it. It's a very different ship than what most people are used to seeing with the Titanic and the Olympic class. So what I've found, and this is a ma- this is purely a matter of opinion, there's going to be plenty of people disagreeing with me, especially since most of your listeners are probably Titanic enthusiasts. Titanic had those um, highlights. It had those really nice, beautiful spaces on board, like the lounge is stunning. And the Grand Staircase, of course, and uh, and the Smoke Room. But then once you get to the average parts of the ship, it starts to just become an average ocean liner. The Lusitania just has this stately feel all throughout it. It's it's very much a... um, It feels like a machine. You know, all all ships are a machine, really. But this, this has this elegant, almost lack of a better word steampunk feel to it where you feel like you're on a ship something that's not trying to hide the fact that it's a ship whereas like titanic and olympic they were trying to make you feel like you're at a palace in the countryside where lusitania felt like this yacht this giant royal yacht really and um as i said we've been recreating it and just it's it's I wish I could show you right now, but it it just pops better than any photograph ever did of this ship. And we're able to see it in full vivid color, 4K, um, recreating the paintings and the textiles and uh, and carvings. And it just this was a beautiful, underappreciated, at least now it's underappreciated ship. Um, So it's wonderful to be able to do this. And like I said, it's just it's beautiful. And it, it feels like this, uh, just rambling at this point, but yeah, you know what I mean. 
I remember yeah. seeing, so, I mean, obviously I think the Titanic is really beautiful, but sure. I remember seeing a photo of, uh, of course it would be useful. I can remember the context for it, but it's, um, it was from the Lusitania or the Mauritania, one of the two, yeah. but it was the, this double decker, two floors under this really mm. beautiful glass dome. Is this, is this a dining room? Yeah, you, yeah, you're using the dining room. I'm talking Probably about the dining room. Virginia. Okay, yeah, just making sure that I'm right. But I just remember thinking, like, listen, the grand staircase and the dome and Olymp- and you know the Olympic classes are they're they're nice, but yeah. especially when you're out in the ocean, having access to that much light yeah. under where you're eating is a really really cool idea, especially if you're up on that upper deck and being able to see some mm-hmm. of the scenery around there's something to be said for that and absolutely you're right that it doesn't get a lot of looking in because i didn't start looking up pictures of this until i started a podcast about the titanic right and the beautiful thing is we're still finding photos in old uh, trade journals so we're seeing parts of the ship that haven't been seen before and it's of course been very helpful to building the model so i mean there's still you know, there's always still so much to be discovered out there, and all of us are digging and digging and digging. And um, I think that's what makes it a project is the new stuff that keeps being found. Yeah, exactly. I, I, agree, I agree. And like Tom, if I start saying something, I shouldn't just like <laughs> yell at me or whatever. But I'll um, from the meeting. I don't think this will give anything away at all. But just we have been studying, and this is something that I mean. I, everybody's contributed but mike's played a huge role in this is is compiling the accounts of the sinking and and we're we've done a forensic study so to speak of what that entailed which has never really been done in that detail for lusitania where titanic's been studied to death and and still there's a lot to learn lusitania hasn't gotten that treatment before so exactly uh, yeah like and, with, oh i'm sorry ken i, I was just going to say i think it's really going to surprise a lot of people when they get to experience this real-time sinking, because when you hear these days, real-time sinking, you think of the real-time animations that we've been involved in with the Titanic. Those play out very, very slowly over the course of two hours and 40 minutes, whereas Lusitania sank in just 18 minutes. And the, the violence of her sinking and the dramatic nature of the disaster with the ship listed over on its side and lifeboats falling in the water. Um, I think it's really going to take a lot of people by surprise. The, the difference between the stateliness of the Titanic disaster, as opposed to what they will end up experiencing in the real time sinking animation for Lusitania in, in just those 18 minutes. It's um, yeah. I mean, Titanic was a was a slow build up with, with absolute panic in the last 10 15 minutes. Lusitania starts with a massive explosion and it's it's not just a sinking ship but you're in a war zone really and it's it's terror from the start and it goes over on its side it's there's no orderly evacuation it's just absolute pandemonium right from the start and um and as as Mike and Tad were saying, you know, with the Titanic, when we make a recreation of that like we have in the past, it wasn't easy. 
I'm not saying it was easy, but a lot of the research had already been done. A lot of that research was done by people in this call or, or our associates. Um, so it was sort of like a matter of just taking that research and plugging it in. Whereas with Lusitania, very little of it had been done. It's like people had a vague idea. Okay, one lifeboat flipped over. One lifeboat fell. One lifeboat might have come down on another lifeboat. But nobody really paid attention to which boat that was, who might have been in it, where they were, at what time that was. So it's it's taking a lot of firsthand accounts and almost starting the research from scratch to try to figure out what all of these rumors and, and hearsays and vague ideas were and where they fit into the puzzle piece and and showing it down to the minute as best as we can yeah and um, i'd like to thank um i i wish levi was here but levi rourke because everything i sent him he uh dutifully transcribed for us so it's all in a word document so picture like almost 400 survivor accounts in a word document that's what we have to draw from 900 plus pages yes <laughs> and that's how i i will say on the record that for multiple reasons this project would not be happening without levi yes <clears throat> but um yeah it's 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 a wonderful piece of history to revive um and and a, a memory to preserve so it's it's just great, as I said, because Titanic has always gotten a lot of attention, but it's it's great to be able to put the focus on on something else and and give it a uh, give it the attention and the memorial that it deserves. Well, in fact, oh, oh, go ahead. All I was gonna say is just that you know it's not to say that it's not a good idea to look into other tragedies, but. As you pointed out, the Lusitania itself, and you know, it had a long career. It was around for a considerable amount of time. It and it was a major disaster in its own right. But it, as you know, I think Tom pointed out, the cultural gap between anything related to Titanic and then anything related to anything else is indescribably vast. Exactly. Well, we, um, I mean, we don't. All of us, I think Titanic is one of our, our number one passions, but there's other ships. It's not, we, we love maritime history or even just history in general. I mean, for example, later this month, um, the 31st into the 1st is the 150th anniversary of the disaster of the SS Atlantic in 1873, a white starliner, same company as the Titanic. And I'm putting together a big documentary on that. Mike has been putting together a, a magazine, a whole magazine issue on that. And it's, um, there's, there's some people who really just focus on that one story of the Titanic and you, and you see that and that's fine. But I think that also adds to the fact that all of these people just put effort into the Titanic really feeds into the fact that some people are only ever exposed to the Titanic. So it's, it's nice to know that, um, our, our group here cares deeply about multiple subjects and, and appreciates that life that was lost on the Atlantic or the Empress of Ireland is just as valuable as a life that was lost on the Titanic and worth remembering. 
And this but, is something I think that we we talked about with you before when we were when Tad and I were on about the Titanic is that it's so important when you're studying the Titanic to have context. A lot of people they just look at the Titanic. They don't know anything about her sister ships or what little they do know. They're usually trying to dig up something to support a conspiracy theory or that the ships were badly <laughs> built. They were weak ships that were ready to fall apart at the first, you know, drop of rain that they encountered. Um, but when you look at the context, the, the bigger context of maritime history, you see the other ships that were being built both before and after, and you see how their design, how their construction compared with that of the Olympic, the Titanic, the Britannic. And you begin to learn that the problems or lack thereof, in many cases, that the Titanic experienced uh, were not uncommon. Uh, there were the other ships out there, for example, the design of the Lusitania, her system of watertight subdivision was something that was pretty deficient by modern standards. Uh, she had long longitudinal bulkheads with wing compartments that pretty much guaranteed that in a scenario where two or more of those side compartments were breached, she was going to roll over dramatically and sink very quickly. Uh, and in fact, her, her, her naval architect that designed the Lusitania and the Mauritania said, if one compartment's breached on the side, this is how far she'll roll. If two compartments are breached on the side, this is how far she'll roll. And if three or more are breached or she rolls over to this angle and holds it for any length of time, abandon the ship without delay. So the the Lusitania was not a perfect ship. Um, And unfortunately, what happened on May 7th, uh, it really played into that design weakness and it, it accelerated uh, what was already going to be a pretty nasty scenario when the torpedo went off uh, and made things you know, a lot worse. That was I think my question, just based on your descriptor, was you know when a, when a torpedo has hit your ship, you know how I don't know how much of the design can save you. Well, I guess it depends on how it hits you and where. There's a lot of yeah. Um, hey. Uh... Tad, maybe this is a Tad question. I had heard that um, the captain of the U-boat claimed that he was just trying to cripple the Lusitania and not sink it. Um, There are ships that have taken torpedoes and didn't go down, but that's pretty rare. Tad, have you heard that? Well, and I I think there is an element, there's a question about how truthful uh, Schweiger was in his logbook about the attack. Uh, there's a lot of details we can confirm uh, from other eyewitnesses, like the appearance of the Lusitania, that it was painted differently during that voyage, uh, the funnel colors, all those things that check out. But I know through this project that we're all working on, uh, I know Kent and Mike in particular had um, found a number of accounts just to give a small example about how he he kind of spun some of the things after the fact was that, he said that they had submerged right after the attack and and basically sailed away where there's a number of uh, accounts that that state that the the U-boat actually surfaced and that people came out and looked and, and like not necessarily admiring their work cuz that's kind of to putting a spin on it that we don't know it could have been just checking out to see what was happening and it it did surface and then sailed away where if you took the 
commander at his word is that they never surfaced after the attack and just left the scene. So certainly I think there's, there's a little bit of tweaking to make things sound a little bit better after the fact, just like people trying to downplay that, Hey, it was a four funneled ship. We didn't know what it was. Well, there was only a very, very small number of ships that it could have been. So I, I don't, don't buy that, that story necessarily that they didn't know what ship it was until after the fact. I think that's a little bit of rewriting history to, to soften things afterwards. And there were, and there were other ships that withstood torpedo attacks. Uh, there was a, a ship called the Justicia or Justicia. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. Uh, it was a Harlan and Wolf built ship. It was basically a, a version of the Olympic class on the same size model as the Lusitania and Mauritania. And during World War One, it it was struck. How many torpedoes did did that poor ship take? Multiple. And how long did it take to sink? Yeah. Six, six over six. two days. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. So the, the design makes a big difference in in how fast the ship sank. Um, Type of torpedo too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also fair. And that gets into a lot of the conspiracy theories that surround the Lusitania, too, because a lot of people will tell you the ship sank so quickly because she was carrying secret cargo of munitions and they exploded uh, clandestine cargo that, that blew up and, and hastened the ship's demise. Unfortunately, uh, for the conspiracy theorists, the ammunition that was on board was not the kind that was uh, inclined to explode when it was in proximity to another explosion. We're talking more about rifle bullets than about anything, um, anything highly explosive like gun cotton or any, or anything else. Nuclear warheads. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've also been able to narrow down uh, much better where the torpedo probably hit the ship. It was well away from the cargo holds uh, that actually contained uh, the munitions that were being shipped or the the so-called secret cargo that many people like to try and claim was on board. Uh, judging by the way that the German commander Schwieger miscalculated the speed of the Lusitania uh, and the distance of the torpedo and how fast the torpedo was traveling, it seems like he was trying to hit the ship around the engine room, which, as Tom pointed out, probably would have crippled it. Um, it probably would have been a pretty fitting uh, thing since the Lusitania had her mighty engines had taken the blue ribbon from from Germany, it probably would have been uh, something of a, a bloody nose to take those engines out of commission uh, with a torpedo. Um, but because he miscalculated the speed of the ship, the torpedo hit a bit further forward than what he was actually calculating, and it hit in probably the worst possible spot that you could that you could imagine it. it the ship listed over in such a way that it was clear two compartments were breached by that torpedo immediately. And from there, it was just things played out very badly. I do think from a historical perspective, there's enough comments from crew members on the the U-boat that make me think that they were surprised how quickly it sank. It's hard to know what any anybody's intention was because I'm not gonna lie. If I were that captain and I had genuinely only intended to cripple the ship and it sank the whole thing, um, no matter what my intentions were to begin with, I would really stick to the story that it was intended only to cripple. Just if, if for no other reason than to save my own face. You know what? Exactly, exactly. Um, and actually, 
that brings up an interesting point, and it was the reaction to it, and like the uh, oh, I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. One of the more interesting artifacts that I've seen from the disaster are the propaganda medals that were made. And what I find so incredible about them is both sides use the exact same medals. Um, because, as you said, sticking to the story to kind of save face, well, there was a lot of complex propaganda being spun and, and conflicting opinions being made. So what initially happened, and please guys correct me if I'm mistaken here, but Germany produced this medal, this uh, commemorative medal of the disaster after, after it happened. And on the one side is the Lusitania going down. And on the other side is uh, the Cunard ticketing booth where I, I believe it's a skeleton who was selling yeah. tickets. And the whole point, I know, right? <laughs> it's, it's you grim. can't it's do grim. that. But it's the point of it. It's not to celebrate it. It's to show the British as selling tickets uh, for a passage on a ship into a war zone. And the whole point is Germany is saying, look at how awful the British are for sending these people to their death and saying that this is ultimately Britain's fault for killing these people. They sold them the tickets. Germany also sent out warnings saying, don't go on this ship. But that's beside the point. So Germany was trying to spin it as Britain is ultimately responsible for their deaths here. Well, Britain got a copy of it and had your exact reaction to that medal. And they actually reproduced it tenfold or more than that even. I think they made 100,000 copies of that medal or something like that. A lot. It was a lot. Don't quote me on the figure here. But it was the point a statement was, making number. Exactly, exactly. And the point now, using the same exact metal, their copy of it, with no changes as far as I'm aware, was basically saying, look what the Germans are doing. They're celebrating this and making medals. So this exact metal was a propaganda piece for both sides. And I just find that so fascinating. And it's it's like, as you said about the captain trying to save face, perhaps, it's like, what face are you saving? And what version of the story are you going to currently benefit from you know what i mean no i do it goes back to the um the hamilton question i think somebody brought that up on my show a long time ago of like who lives and who dies and who tells the story are all extremely yeah. important to the history exactly exactly i, didn't know I mean it was in uh... yeah it's um there's a picture of them in like every Lusitania book. I have to look it up. Sorry, Mike, I interrupted you. Oh, no, it's fine. No, but what I was going to say, it was in Germany's best interest to sink the Lusitania because obviously they already had the propaganda that, you know, it was uh, a warship and it was secretly armed and there were troops aboard. But I mean, in truth, I mean, the, the Lusitania, the Mauritania could be converted and those two superliners would have been, I mean, it certainly, uh, it, it would have hurt Germany's chances if they were converted. So what better thing to, for them to do is to take one out. And the Mauritania eventually was converted over to, to, to be active during the war. So, you know, I, I really do think they were trying to sink it. 
I mean, it would make sense. As you said, the Mauritania was recommissioned the same way the Olympic was commissioned. Now, admittedly, mm-hmm. the Olympic was not as fast. So if I saw both of those coming towards me, I'd be far more concerned with the Mauritania. Right. But I still wouldn't want the Olympic coming after me. It's just big. They're both big. They're just yeah. huge. They get on it- top of you and it's like, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> and, and there was only a difference of two or three, you know, knots difference in their top speeds. Uh, you know, That's the Olympic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the what's amazing is over the years, Lusitania has become a victim of what's called the fog of war mm-hmm. for the exact reasons that Tom was pointing out and Mike and Tad have talked about the propaganda that's out there and the the political sentiment and the the idea of favoring this one country over another and this one perspective over another uh it's it's really astounding to see uh how much sentiment there still is on the subject to this day um a lot of people there are many historical figures that are very polarizing. And in the Lusitania story, one of them is Winston Churchill. He was a very polarizing figure in world history in the 20th century. And there are many people who um, they spend a lot of conspiracy theories about it based on Winston Churchill's correspondence uh, regarding neutral shipping before the disaster happened. Um, You know, so you have a lot of this out there and it's amazing how much more complex that makes it for for us when we're trying to study here, we're studying the, the history of how the ship lived and died. You know, what happened in those 18 minutes? What was the technical features of the ship's uh, construction? Um, we're looking at that and we're having to cut through the propaganda element to get down to the actual history of what happened. And it's it's um, it, it complicates matters a lot. I, I agree with that. And like, I think one of the things we've, we've stated a few times, it's really important to keep the human element in mind here because ultimately in the, in the grand scale of things in World War One, Lusitania didn't make an ounce of, of difference in the outcome of the war. Um, uh, from a propaganda standpoint, that was the, as we said, is the number one reason it was, is remembered as much as it is. And, and, and ultimately you look at the U-boat campaign during the war. That's one of 5,000 ships that U-boat sunk in. 15,000 people that were killed by U-boats. That's not to downplay what happened on Lusitania, but it just makes it very easy to forget that there was individual humans that were tragically struck down and went through this. Um, When you start looking at numbers like that, it's very easy to lose sight of what that really was. I was about to say that becomes the danger when you get into a numbers game and you start throwing around I don't know why you would do this, but you start rapid firing how many people died on certain ships or in certain battles and certain wars. You start talking about how things happen. It gets really easy to forget that every single number is a name. You know, when you quote some number out there of X many people died in X tragedy, every single one of those numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever it is, belongs to a person who had a story, no matter what it was. And mm-hmm. it could have been, you know, in some cases, they're, you know, perfectly average people. In some cases, they're probably terrible people. And we're like, well, maybe that's what should have happened. But, you know, for the in the grand scheme of things, it is a tale of individual people whose lives mm-hmm. were either permanently altered or ended. Yeah. And beyond that, too, I mean, every every name on the on the death toll is a grieving family. 
you know, a, a widow or a orphan or a set of parents who just lost their kid. You know, it's stories yeah. that don't just end with the loss of the ship. Yeah. I, and I, that I, what's that? Oh, sorry. I think I said something like grief carries onward. Yeah. 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 What's what's wonderful is that the families of the Lusitania are heavily in, interested in preserving the memory. In fact, uh, we have the Lusitania Relatives Association. I've got to say, it's very strong. They um, they they um, made sure they were in various destinations for the 100th, whether it be Ireland or England or New York or aboard uh, who was it the QM2 or the or the Queen Elizabeth, one of those ships. Um, yeah, and it's very active, and it's a constant sharing of information. And, you know, of course, uh, there's a new book out on the Lusitania Dives, which is beautiful. But, uh, yeah, the families, they, 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 they've, they've gotten to know each other, and they've become families. I mean, it's like that shared bond that is now cannot be broken. Mm-hmm. It's an exceptionally unique experience to, to have that is irreplicable. You know, it's irreplicable. No one, there's, there, there's no way to join that circle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I was lucky to know the last survivor with any memories, um, you know, she lived in Connecticut, so she was only a two-hour drive from me. And um, I first wrote to her, and I, you know, kind of at the end, I said, I don't suppose you'd like a pen pal. And she wrote back, she goes, I've never had a pen pal before. I'd be delighted. And, I mean, it just led to a very long and loving friendship. And, um, you know, I'd go there with friends. And, you know, because she'd only been three, her memories were very limited but she never added anything to them. And occasionally, if she was very relaxed, another memory might pop up. But, you know, they're like short memories. It's like um, it's like a, a, a movie reel and then somebody cuts the scissors, um, you know, and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it was very sad when she died because she was the last person with any memory of uh, the sinking. Mike, who was that? Oh, Barbara Anderson McDermott. Mm. And I think that that illustrates the importance of these projects like we worked on in the in the books and everything is that when the living memory of an event's gone, it's still important. It's still something that that should resonate with people and that that deserves to be remembered. Like those those people deserve to to have their memories preserved and and passed along. It's it's something that um not everybody's interested in it. I wish more people were, but I think a lot of people get surprised. Sometimes they start learning about the stories and find something they can identify with or connect with, and then end up more interested than they ever would have realized. Oh, absolutely. Was well, it in uh, the Liverpool Maritime Museum, which is run by Ellie Moffat uh, every year, she organizes the May 7th Memorial um, and relatives always come out there. Even during COVID, they had some type of memorial each year. And um, yeah, and I would assume from local coverage, it, it, it still fascinates people. You know, they read about it and they're like, oh, wow. And they, as I said, 
relatives, different ones each time, go there to pay their respects. I think that's important to have those kind of events. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the one of the goals of this project that we've been working on Lusitania the Greyhound's Wake is uh is to bring it back out of some dusty old history book, you know, maybe people at school they hear about the Lusitania very briefly, they don't really know much about it or in a in a history about the Titanic they might hear that the Titanic was built because of the Lusitania and then the history moves on. Um, and suddenly it's, it's going to go from something where if they do a little digging, they can find some black and white pictures of a ship. They look very different from Titanic inside. And suddenly they're going to be able to walk the decks and they're going to be able to feel what it was like to stand on that ship, very different ship from the Titanic. And they'll be able to experience the disaster, the way the the people on the Lusitania did um, very much a, an unfamiliar event for many people. And it was all new for the ones who were on the Lusitania going through it. And so hopefully what it will do is it will help to, to preserve those memories, that history and, and make it so that it, it interests people of today. And I hope that it does because as you know, you brought up, and I think we've, you've all brought up over the course of this chat, is that context is important, and there's so much more context than just one shipping liner in 1912. <laughs> exactly. There's more. I've heard rumors that there might be more than just that one ship. <laughs> Well, I mean, think about it. Everybody that claimed that they had a relative that was supposedly booked on that ship, I mean, that I mean, it would have fell over on the dock side if all those people uh, had tried to board it. I do that's think right. that's a fun game to play. <laughs> yeah, when you, when you, I, I'm sure we all often hear people when when you mention that you work with the Titanic or or something like that. I'm sure every one of us hear people who say, oh, do you know my grandparents were <laughs> supposed to be on that or supposed, always supposed to be. Yeah, and mine then, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, yeah, mine, mine too. Sure. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. And then you just go, mm-hmm, okay, cool. That's so cool. I think my new, I, I told uh, Tad and Kent that whenever someone approaches me with the, um, did you know that it wasn't the Titanic that sunk? It was the Olympic. I hit oh. them with the, actually, it was the Britannic. <laughs> I just want to watch it. didn't even screen. sink. Well, I know. I just want to watch them blue screen for a minute. But now <laughs> if somebody ever does that, oh, my grandparents were supposed to be on the Titanic. I think I'm just going to hit them with, oh, mine were supposed to be on the Lusitania. There you yep. go. There you go. <laughs> and then like, leave the conversation. Yep. But I mean, as funny as the conspiracy theories are uh, at the end yeah. of the day, I do hope that people actually really come to, I hope that people, you know, especially people listen to my show. I hope that when they get this game game experience, when the experience is available, that they yeah. actually do the walkthrough and, you know, really drink it in because it doesn't get a lot of looking in, but the photographs right. of the Mauritania and the Lusitania are really beautiful. And it was a completely different style from what anything the White Star Line was getting up to. So it's just different in it's, all kinds of ways. It's interesting because it's, you know, those 
six or so years between the construction of the Lusitania and the construction of the Olympic class and the Titanic. One is really the end of the Victorian era. And one is, is very much the beginning, I guess it's kind of the middle of the Edwardian era. And it's, you feel that difference in style mm-hmm. and you really can see it with, with everywhere. Like the like Titanic was trying to, Titanic was more spacious mm-hmm. and it was trying to be as spacious as possible. It wanted you to feel like you were in an open area, a large sweeping room where in Lusitania, they just worked with what they had. And, and even like then, well. yeah, and even then the Lusitania was making upgrades uh, towards the end of its career. Mm-hmm. It took its Miranda Cafe, which really wasn't much to look at, and they really upgraded it beautifully. Yep. And even then they almost made it a gymnasium instead, but they, they just decided to upgrade the cafe. and It was much more chic and probably a little more keeping with the times. And in it's our also, experience... Oh, oh, no, sorry, go ahead. Real quick, Ken. In our experience, we show it as it was on the final voyage. So even those little changes, even the ones that are very poorly documented, we incorporate that into our recreation of the ship. So you're not just boarding the Lusitania in a generic state. You boarded May 1915. Yeah. I was also going to point out that you know, if you look at the Olympic and the Titanic, they were very similar in their interior decor to each other. Mm-hmm. But if you go further back and you look at other White Star ships that had come before them, like the Adriatic, uh, other entrance of the Big Four, even the Oceanic of 1899, you look at the pictures of those older ships and you say, boy, that looks a lot like Olympic and Titanic. It's interesting because the White Star line was uh, had more of an evolutionary concept to mm-hmm. their interior decor Whereas the Lusitania and the Mauritania, Cunard actually hired uh, an in, uh, an interior decorator, designer, architect for each one of those two ships to take this bare bones platform that was basically identical and to create a different interior experience with each one of those ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with Lusitania, you had a lot of of white colors and, and um you know, with Mauritania, you had a lot of exotic veneers and woods and inlays and things like that. And they were two totally different ships from each other and from pretty much anything that came before or went after. And and to actually see that one off that was the Lusitania in her 1915 configuration, the way it's being built now, it, it's just stunning to to look at and to kind of drink it in, as, as you said, and to to feel it. I'm sure that the answer to this question is variable, but do you have an approximate timeline of when you're hoping to launch the um, the Greyhounds Wake? Um, we were, yeah, I mean, we're taking it casually. The thing is, um, in previous projects that I've been involved in, there was always like a, uh, a fundraising effort and things like that. But in this case, it's just self-funded and we're making it, casually as we go on at the pace that we want to do it at we all have day jobs we all have hobbies and lives so it's sort of just like we want to get it done we're, we're all ready to call this project complete but it's just as it as it comes together it'll be done exciting well i hope that i hope that people who are listening to my show go and 
look that up when it's live. I hope that they do even just on their own, a little bit of research, read the entire Wikipedia page. I only read a few (laughs) sentences. Like if nothing else, get, get a little bit of insight because as these guys have talked about during the very generous donation of their time, this is, you know, I have now how many episodes of my show dedicated to talking to different people who like Titanic, different people from everywhere. And this is the first time I've ever spoken to people about not Titanic. So I'm hoping maybe, maybe they'll go and read a little bit more. Well, these three gentlemen right here have all written wonderful books on the subject of the Lusitania or at least adjacent to the Lusitania. Like I'm looking at right here. Um, not to, I hope it's not inappropriate to give a quick shout out, but no. I know Mike and uh, Tad's new book, is, which is knocking over half my bookshelf right now <laughs> into the danger zone, which as we started out the conversation um, about U-boat warfare, it's just a phenomenal book. I haven't read it all yet, but it's wonderful. And right on the back is a painting of the Lusitania getting torpedoed. It's So there's just, I, I feel, yes, um, into the danger zone. And I, I I just feel like I never feel like I'm an expert or a, even a historian on these subjects. And that's fine. I don't need to be, I want to tell a story, but I feel like I'm in very, very good company with people who are historians who I feel are the best in their field or some of the best in their field. And it's just a, a privilege to be able to participate in these projects and, and continue to participate with, with these, um, these fine researchers. And, uh, just, uh, you know, working with Tom and these guys are great because, you know, you want people that have that drive to get it right. And we're all pouring over these accounts and, you know, I've had to go back and say, well, I made a mistake about this or I was wrong about that. Or some others in the group like Tom have noticed stuff that I've overlooked. And I said, gee, I hadn't contemplated that. So now you've got fresh eyes and we all have the same shared goal is to get this right. And, um, you know, it's been a wonderful group effort. Well, it's been, it's been amazing to have you guys on um, Kent and Tad again and Tom and Mike for the first time. I learned a lot. I've learned I also have a lot more to learn about the Lusitania, so I'm going to go do that, and I'm probably going to order a copy of that book as soon as oh, we hang up. <laughs> There's well, always thanks. more to learn. And yeah, it's... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just I want to say I think it's great what you're, you're doing. You know, you're bringing these stories to uh, to a fresh audience, and we're always... <laughs> I'm always happy to help, and I know probably the same with uh, Kent and Tad and Mike. Yeah, thanks again for having us on. It was uh, yeah. wonderful to, to talk with you again, and it was a nice conversation for sure. Yeah, thank yeah, you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word Titanic Talkline, T I T A N I C T A L K L I N E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. 
Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!